thank you all for coming. Because it's my inaugural, I get to indulge myself. I get to indulge myself in the pleasures that my research life offers. And that research life, as Dilworthen has explained, is overwhelmingly devoted at the moment to researching the history of organised crime in southern Italy and Sicily. And this evening I wanted to set out an example for you by way of trying to share those pleasures with you. And those pleasures are threefold. First, there's the pleasure of discovery. History is nothing without documentation. It starts with documentation. And perhaps the purest pleasure that historical research can offer is the discovery of new documentation that completely changes our perspective on a moment in the past. The documentation that I'm going to draw on this evening is quite simply the, one of the most exciting things I've ever found in an archive. The second pleasure is the pleasure of narrative. I love taking bits and pieces of evidence from the past and trying to turn them into a story. And tonight, rather than give you a lecture, I'm going to tell you a story, a story that takes us back nearly a century and a half to the very earliest days of the Sicilian Mafia. It's a cop story, a story with heroes and villains, good guys and bad guys. I remember when I first held the papers of this document in my hand in the Central State Archive in Rome and read them, I felt like it was a, a sort of John Grisham novel or a Le Carre that just needed transcribing. Because I'm going to tell a story, I'm going to ask your patience for a little bit longer than the standard 45-minute academic lecture. Hold, I, I hope, not too much longer than that. The third pleasure is the pleasure of relevance. History doesn't have to be relevant. In fact, it's probably best when it isn't relevant, when it's a kind of experiment in thinking about other times and other places. But the history of the Mafia is one of those rare cases where I think history is relevant and even urgently relevant. We live in, we live in a country which is lucky enough uh, to be free of the Mafia, the way the Mafia is nothing more than a cinematic genre. This is not the case in large parts of southern Italy and Sicily, where the Mafia is a regime, a regime that profoundly compromises the economy, profoundly compromises the workings of Italian democracy and damages the life chances of millions of people. It's an irresistibly exciting thing for a hist historian to have the sense that in some very small, very marginal way, by researching the past, you might be making a contribution to the fight to liberate southern Italy from that regime. Now, the relevance of the story I'm going to tell tonight can be explained to you through two men. Two men who not only changed the history of the Mafia, I hope irreversibly, but actually made the writing of Mafia history possible. The first of those two men is the man on the left, Tommaso Buscetta. Tommaso Buscetta was a man of honour, as members of the Sicilian Mafia call themselves. And for the purposes of the story I'm going to tell this evening, it's important to remember one thing about him, that he was a loser. He had lost in the permanent internal warfare, or uh, internal fighting within Cosa Nostra, the Sicilian Mafia, he, he had been marginalised, his enemies had taken power, 
Many members of his immediate family had been murdered, and after failing in a suicide attempt, he resolved to turn state's evidence, to tell what he knew about the organisation that he was a member of. His, among his many motives were undoubtedly revenge. Vendetta, to use the Italian word. He wanted the state to, get, to use the state to get back at his mafia enemies. Now, amongst the very important bits of evidence that Buscetta told to the state, beginning in, 19, in July 1984, was, was the initiation ritual that he went through as a young man, the initiation ritual that signalled his transition, marked his transition from being an ordinary criminal to being a member of a criminal elite. And that initiation ritual said something very simple and extremely important about the Sicilian Mafia something that Italy had consistently refused to recognise until that point. Very simply, it said that the Sicilian Mafia was an organisation, a Freemasonry of murderers, a self-conscious, oathed sect. It was not, in other words, a loose constellation of local gangs. It was not a vague, recalcitrant mentality shared by all Sicilians. There was a boundary between Sicily and the Mafia, a boundary that one crossed by undergoing that initiation ritual. Now, the man that Buscetta told his story to, the only man he would speak to, was Giovanni Falcone. Giovanni Falcone, who quite deservedly, quite rightly, as a national hero in Italy. Falcone was from Palermo, like Buscetta. He was an investigating magistrate who specialised in mafia crime. And by using Buscetta's evidence and a great deal more, Falcone went on to assemble the prosecution case in the so-called Maxi trial of 1986-1987 which was not only the trial of 700 individual members of the Mafia for specific crimes, it was a trial of the Mafia as such. It was a trial that aimed to create a simple and powerful precedent. It was a trial that aimed to prove that the Mafia existed, that it was what Buscetta says it was, a single, unified criminal organisation, rather like the Freemasonry. In early in 1992, last day of January 1992, the maxi trial finally made its way through the very last stage of Italy's convoluted judicial process when Italy's Supreme Court issued a ruling stated very simply that Buscetta had been right, the convictions in the maxi trial were safe, and that the mafia existed. The mafia was what Tommaso Buscetta says it said it was. The precedent had been created. And within weeks, the Mafia reacted by murdering Giovanni Falcone in revenge. Falcone was blown up, along with his wife and three members of his police escort, uh, as he travelled by car along the motorway from Palermo Airport to the city. Now, 
those events, which are the stuff of legend in Italy, raise important questions for historians. Because if the Mafia exists, an obvious question is, how long has it existed? How long has it been in the form that Tommaso Buscetta described? And the story I'm going to tell you this evening, I think, proves, the evidence that I discovered, I think proves that the truth about the Mafia that Giovanni Falcone died to prove could have been proved more than a century earlier. In other words, the Mafia has always been a single Freemasonry of crime. And the reasons why it was not regarded as that were because of a cover-up. The story I'm going to tell is the story of a cover-up. The story begins in a small village, then a village, now a suburb, just outside Palermo, within walking distance of Palermo, a village called Uditore, which in the mid-1870s had seven to 800 inhabitants and in 1874 counted 34 murders, extraordinary high murder rate. The reason there were so many murders was because there was a Mafia war. And the Mafia war was being fought for control of the primary economic resource of the area and the business that was the training ground, the cradle, the laboratory of the Mafia's whole methodology. That business was citrus fruit. In the middle of the 19th century... The agricultural land immediately surrounding um, Palermo was some of Europe's most profitable agricultural land. Sicily had a near-natural monopoly on the production of citrus fruit, and the citrus fruit business, lemons and oranges, was an investment-intensive and highly profitable business. But it was also, in a lawless place like Sicily, very vulnerable to vandalism, to threats of vandalism, to protection rackets. Now the mafia boss, the man behind the protection rackets in Uditore at the time, mafia boss at the town was a man called Antonino Giammona, described in various sources as taciturn, puffed up and wary. A man almost entirely without education but who has a natural intelligence and composes poems in Sicilian dialect. And in the course of the investigations into these 34 murders in Uditore, the police discovered, for the first time, as far as we know, that Antonino Giammona put his men through an initiation ritual, which the chief of police described in a report in February 1876 as follows. The oathing ritual seems to be as follows. The initiate is brought before Antonino Giammona and his various underbosses. One of them pricks his arm and hand to draw blood. This blood is then wiped on the image of a saint, printed on card, which is then burnt at the same time that the new member swears rigorous observance of the faith. The ashes are then thrown in the air and scattered as if to symbolise the annihilation of traitors. That is exactly the same initiation ritual that Tommaso Buscetta, 108 years later, would describe to Giovanni Falcone. 
And the police in the mid-1870s were very well aware of how important it was. It showed, as the police chief said, that the Mafia was a sect with a life of its own, which operates in the shadows. Now, over the course of the following year, 1876, more associations were discovered across Western Sicily using the same initiation ritual. 21 different towns and villages in three different provinces had mafia gangs that used this ritual. And by early in 1877, the police had accumulated enough evidence to beg an obvious question. If all of these gangs used the same initiation ritual, could they not be branches of a single organisation and not just local anarchic gangs unrelated one to another? And the first person to pose that question was a new prefect of Palermo. The prefect was the government officer, an officer of the Ministry of the Interior, responsible for supervising the administration of policing. And a new prefect of Palermo wrote in January 1877 to Carlo Morena, who was the chief attorney at the Palermo Court of Appeal. The man, in other words, in charge of policing, was writing to the man who supervised the administration of criminal justice in Western Sicily. And he was saying, ought we not to find out whether there is a real correspondence between these secret associations of criminals? And if there is one, shouldn't we coordinate all the different trials involving criminal associations with a single aim and under a single authority? In other words, and many Sicilians would find it difficult to read those words without a shiver of recognition, what the prefect was suggesting was that there should be a maxi trial. Kind of maxi trial that would only arrive with Falcone in the 1980s. Now, Carlo Morena, the chief attorney, took his time replying. He gathered all the evidence and eventually he wrote back with a very clear, unequivocal conclusion. Here it is. Here and there across Sicily, there are a variety of groups or associations of criminals, but they are not confederated or linked to one another with bonds of shared complicity. The island's traditions and an overview of the trials that are being prepared in different places together exclude the possibility of this supposed federation between them. Indeed, they prove that far from there being a real correspondence and communality of interests between these associations, there are instead criminal rivalries, ancient hatreds and bloodthirsty vendettas. The Mafia, in other words, did not exist. Now, the judicial system in Sicily took its cue from Carlo Morena. Henceforth, when mafiosi were brought to trial, they were brought to trial for individual crimes, they were brought to trial locally, and uh, evidence about the mafia in one place was not taken as significant in any way about the mafia in any other place. Historians, too, took their cue from Carlo Morena. Morena has all the 
hallmarks of a reliable historical witness in this particular case. He wasn't Sicilian. He was from Liguria in the north of Italy. He'd been sent to Sicily precisely because the government, often with good reason, didn't trust Sicilian magistrates. He'd been sent to uphold the rule of law, and that's what it seemed he was doing. Morena saw a whole host of evidence that we don't have access to anymore. A lot of it's been lost. And of course his conclusion has the hallmark also of common sense. How can it be that people who are killing each other the whole time can be the members of the same organisation, the same brotherhood? So that's what historians concluded. The mafia didn't exist. Now, I hope I'm not giving away too much of the end of the story if I say that Carlo Morena is the bad guy in the story. He is the author of the cover-up. Cover-up enacted on the Mafia's behalf. And to find out why that is so and why we know that's so, we need to turn from the villain of the story to the hero, Inspector Hermano San Giorgi. This is, I'm afraid, the only image I've been able to find of him. Hermano San Giorgi was born in 1840. He'd risen from the ranks through the police. He'd started as a clerk in his hometown in the Romagna. And he was profoundly grateful, profoundly patriotic and grateful to the country that had given this opportunity to him. He called his children Italo and Italia. In March 1875, he was given, at age 35, he was given his first posting as inspector. And he was given charge of the biggest, most heavily populated and most mafia-infested police district in Sicily, Castelmolo, which covered the northern part of the countryside immediately surrounding Palermo. The Piana dei Colli was part of his territory. The Piana dei Colli, for those of you who don't know Palermo, is a sort of plain squeezed between the mountains just to the north of Palermo. And it also included the lemon groves of Uditore, as San Giorgio explained, which was sadly renowned for criminal associations and bloody crimes, the place where those 34 murders took place. And looking back later, San Giorgio gives us his diagnosis of the profound problems with law and order in his new beat. He said, The mafia dominated the situation, and it had even managed to infect the police station. In fact, the main mafia bosses had all been granted gun licenses. When murders and other serious crimes happened in the Castelmolo district, as they did frequently, the police chose its informers from among these men. They turned to the most notorious mafiosi for confidential information on who was guilty, with the frequent result that poor, honest families were sacrificed, criminals went unpunished, and the general public was disheartened and distrustful. In Italian, they call this the co-management of crime. The mafia had made this area so ungovernable 
that for the police to establish any kind of peace at all, they had to form an alliance with the Mafia bosses. They had to grant the Mafia bosses impunity in return for being fed information of dubious reliability on petty criminals. The man behind this strategy of co-management uh, crime, the Mafia boss of large parts of the Piano dei Colli, was called Giovanni Cusimano, known as Il Nero. We'll call him Darky, um, a reasonable translation. He was so powerful that he'd managed to bully the biggest and richest local landowner into handing over his own villa for a peppercorn rent, a villa which Cusimano, Darky Cusimano, used as his base, where he received his friends, friends who included San George's predecessor, as police, police inspector, the local Carabinieri officer, and the editor of the local newspaper. Anybody who counted was a friend of the Mafia boss, Darky Cusimano. San Giorgi decided to turn the policy of co-managing crime on its head. He said, I quickly grasped that I needed to adopt a method diametrically opposed to the one that the Mafia had used thus far. So at once I started openly fighting the Mafia. Now, San Giorgi's story is, in a sense, a parable of just how difficult an open fight against the Mafia is. He was, however, initially successful. He re-energised the investigations into the 34 murders in Uditore that had been blocked. He revoked the Mafia boss's gun licences and handed out police cautions to them all. He resisted what he called the intervention of senators, MPs, senior magistrates and other notables in defence of the crime bosses. The Mafia, even the earlier Mafia, already had very powerful friends. And he got good results, as San Giorgi tells us. The Mafia went into its shell there was a positive reawakening of public morale and a marked reduction in the number of crimes. And a byproduct of this new open fight against the Mafia was the discovery of the Mafia's initiation ritual for the first time. It's to San Giorgi's police work that we owe that first discovery that I told you about earlier. Then... In November 1875, eight months after he arrived in Palermo, a crippled old man, leaning heavily on his lawyer's arm, was shown into San Giorgi's office. His name was Calogero Gambino. He was the owner of a lemon grove in the Piana dei Colli, near the Borgata of San Lorenzo, Borgata Township Settlement. He began by saying that he'd heard of San Giorgi's reputation as an honest and energetic cop, and so now was turning to him to obtain justice against the Mafia. Calogero Gambino, old man Gambino, then began to tell his story. He had two sons, Antonino and Salvatore. Some 18 months earlier, on the 18th of June 1874, Antonino had been ambushed and murdered, shot in the back from behind the wall of a lemon grove as he was on his way to spray the family's vines with sulphur. Gambino's other son, Salvatore, was about to stand trial for his brother's murder. But this fratricide 
was nothing of the sort, old man Gambino explained. The mafia, in the shape of Darky Cusimano with its friends and the police, had killed one son, Antonino, and framed the other for the murder. This was what old man Gambino described as a double vendetta. It was the culmination, the old man said, of a 15-year campaign of persecution of the Gambino family by the mafia of the Piana dei Colli. And at that point, old man Gambino, still sitting in San Giorgi's office, began to tell him the story of that 15-year campaign of persecution. Stage one was kidnap and rape. Back in 1860, the year, in other words, of Garibaldi's heroic expedition that first united Sicily to Italy, a mafioso called Giuseppe Biundi, who was the nephew of Darky Cusimano's underboss, raped, kidnapped and raped Gambino's daughter to force a marriage. A few months after the wedding, Gambino's new and rather unwelcome son-in-law stole several thousand lire from his house. Old man Gambino said that he was too afraid of Biundi's contacts to do anything about it. Stage two of the persecution, kidnap and murder. 1863, old man Gambino's son-in-law kidnapped and murdered his brother. At this stage, Gambino thought it was too much. He gave a tip-off to the police. His son-in-law and his accomplice were caught and sentenced to 15 years hard labour. That, said old man Gambino, had set the mafia against him permanently. Old man Gambino said to San Giorgi, first the mafia persecuted me for vile reasons of economic speculation. But after what I revealed to the police, there came another, much more serious reason for turning the screw on me. Personal vendetta. Stage three of the campaign of persecution was an ambush. September 1866 was a very depressing time to be an Italian patriot in Sicily. One of the reasons why Garibaldi had succeeded in overthrowing the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies and joining Sicily to Italy was because groups of rebels from the towns and villages around Palermo had joined his expedition and descended on Palermo from the towns and villages around it. Many of those squads, as they were called, were led by mafiosi. Mafiosi who were speculating on political turmoil for their own interests. The early history of Sicily's integration in Italy was anarchic and violent and lawless. And in September 1866, another revolt, this time against Italy, led by many of the same mafiosi, was launched. Seven days of anarchy ensued before troops were brought from northern Italy to restore order. But importantly... Many of the most important mafia bosses decided at that point to break their links to revolutionary politics and to defend the established order. They, at that point, had vested interests in Italy and resisted the revolt. That's the background. 
As far as Calogero Gambino was concerned, the revolt of 18, the uh, anarchic revolt of 18, September 1866 provided good cover to continue the persecution of him. Just before the outbreak of the revolt, old man Gambino was confidentially warned that he was in grave danger. He and his family loaded all their goods onto a wagon and set off to take refuge with a friend. On the way, they were attacked by a party of 17 mafiosi. A fierce gun battle followed. Salvatore Gambino, Calogero Gambino's son, was wounded in the left but both brothers, formidable fighters, managed to escape over the walls of a nearby lemon grove, abandoning the family's possessions to be ransacked by their tormentors. They found refuge with a friend in the nearby village of Resutana, where the following day they took delivery of a package sent to them by Darky Cusimano, the mafia boss who was perfect, persecuting them. It contained a large hunk of meat from their own mare. Now, as a mafia message, it doesn't quite have the cinematic flair of the severed horse's head in The Godfather, but the message is essentially the same. The mafia had unfinished business with Calogero Gambino. Now, it's at this point in Old Man Gambino's story that we have to take a step back and try and think our way into the head of Inspector San Giorgi as he's listening to that story being told. And it's my certain conviction that by this time in Old Man Gambino's story, Inspector San Giorgi had reached a conclusion. He'd reached the conclusion that the old man standing before him was not the innocent victim of mafia persecution. Old Man Gambino was himself a mafioso. He was a participant in a struggle for power within the mafia and was giving a highly edited version of events. Now, there are lots of reasons. He was a loser, in other words, like Tommaso Buscetta many years later, who was trying to use the state to get back at his mafia enemies. Now, there are many reasons why I think San Giorgi reached that conclusion. The simplest is the name of the person who offered hospitality to the Gambino family when they fled in September 1866. His name was Salvatore Licata. He was age 61 at the time he gave sanctuary to the Gambinos, and he was one of the most powerful and best-connected mafia bosses in the whole of the province of Palermo. Like many other mafia bosses, Salvatore Licata, like Antonino Giammona indeed, Salvatore Licata was one of the men who had not joined the revolt in 1866. He organised instead what was called a counter-squad to defend the status quo. His thugs formed a kind of vigilante squad. He didn't join the revolt because he was doing very well out of Italy. Some of his sons were mafia extortionists, some of his sons were policemen. It was the perfect arrangement. Back to old man Gambino's narrative. At this point, after the failure of the revolt of 1866, Darky Cusimano makes a new peace 
initiative. He sent emissaries to the Gambino family, still at the Licata's house, their farm, to propose what he called a spiritual kinship. Two of Darkey's mafia lieutenants were to become godfathers to Gambino's grandchildren. And Gambino agreed. Now this is a version of an institution called Comparatico, co-fatherhood in southern Italy, common at this time across southern Italy and Sicily. When you choose somebody to be the co-father, the godfather of your child, you would choose somebody powerful, important, respected, in the hope of giving that child and your family a head start, powerful connections. Within the mafia, however, it was being used to broker a peace. It was being used to end a war. And another peacemaking strategy emerged this time in 1866. Old man Gambino's son, Salvatore, married one of the Licata daughters. Now, this is an extraordinary insight, the earliest insight we have into something that Mafia still does to this day. Rather like the crowned heads of Europe of the Middle Ages and the early modern period, mafia, mafiosi, when it comes to building alliances to prepare for war, when it comes to making peace after a war, when it comes to trying to project your power down through the generations, have a subtle and resourceful dynastic politics. It's something extraordinarily sophisticated for criminals. They were thinking for the long term, thinking politically and thinking for the long term. But then, of course, mafiosi are not ordinary criminals. Be that as it may, this peace, this dynastic peace, didn't last. Six years later, December 1872, the Gambino brothers were once more ambushed in the Piana dei Colli. Following an initial volley of shots, they fought their six assailants hand-to-hand, and again, the two formidable Gambino brothers managed to escape with their lives. Now, there was a worrying signal in the identity of the six people who attacked them. Predictably enough, five of them were Darky Cusimano's men. Five of them belonged to the mafia organisation under Cusimano. One of them, however, and of course they knew each other intimately because they were all part of the same criminal brotherhood, one of them belonged to Antonino Giammona's clan from Uditore. This was an alliance. This was a signal that an alliance had been formed against the Gambinos. But the attack did, this ambush did have a positive outcome, potentially positive outcome for the Gambinos, in that Antonino Gambino managed in the fighting to grab the rifle of one of his attackers, which was a potentially very important piece of evidence. Through the good offices of their friends, the Licatas, the Gambinos approached the police, gave them the rifle, in the hope, in classic mafia style, that the police would do their work for them, that they would prosecute their attackers using the rifle as evidence. But terrifyingly for the Gambinos, not only did the police 
not use the rifle as evidence against the Gambinos attackers, they made moves to prosecute the Gambinos for stealing the rifle. <laughs> this was another signal, a signal as big as a house, a signal that it wasn't just Daki Cusimano, it wasn't just Antonino Giammona, it was also Salvatore Licata who had joined the alliance against the Gambinos. The Gambinos were isolated. And in the world of Italian mafia politics, isolation means one thing, death. Julie, at dawn on the 18th of June, 1874, Antonino Gambino was shot dead. And the police, on the mafia's orders, arrested his brother Salvatore and began the process of framing him for the fratricide. And there was the end of Calabro Gambino's story. At this point, San Giorgi's police work took over. can't go into the details, but basically he did his research, did his homework, and found that the facts fitted squarely with Calogero Gambino's narrative, that the, the prosecution for the fratricide looked profoundly dodgy. Having gathered this information, San Giorgi did the right thing. He went to the magistrates who were leading the fratricide prosecution. He even went to the chief attorney of the Palermo Court of Appeal, Carlo Morena, who we've met already. The magistrates gave him a reassuring response. They told him he was absolutely right to let them know about this evidence and asked him to submit a full report. At that point in the story, there was a change in the political weather. March 1876... The coalition that had governed Italy since 1860 fell, a coalition of largely northern politicians, and a new coalition dominated by the south took power in Rome. The personnel who'd worked for the previous administration were rapidly purged, including San Giorgi. San Giorgi, in August 1876, was sent to a posting in the opposite corner of Sicily, Sicily's least uh, criminous province, the province of Syracuse, he was kicked into the long grass, in other words. And while he was in Syracuse, the Gambino case dragged on slowly. Old man Gambino got his chance to tell his story direct to the magistrates, which was good, of course. Some of the witnesses that San Giorgio had interviewed lost confidence and changed their stories. And worse still, some of the corrupt cops that San Giorgi had tried to marginalise managed to seem to be able to get their fingers back into the case again. As San Giorgi noted wistfully, if I were fatalistic, I would regrettably have to admit that an evil spirit, an arcane and pernicious influence, overcame all the procedures I went through to investigate the deductions I had based on old man Gambino's evidence. San Giorgi didn't know at this stage just how arcane and pernicious the Mafia's influence could be. Then late in 1876, the political weather changed once more. There was a crime wave in Sicily, which became an international embarrassment, and the new government changed tack and started a new crackdown on crime in Sicily. 
San Giorgio was too valuable an asset to be parked in peaceful Siracusa at this point, and he was sent to another mafia hotspot in the province of Agrigento. He was given a pay rise and recommended for a decoration. He was back in the front line. And one of the major targets of his investigations in his new beat was the mafia boss of a town called Burgio in the province of Agrigento, a man called Pietro de Michele. Now, Pietro de Michele had a CV like many of the mafia bosses of Palermo. He'd used the political violence of the 1840s, 1850s, as a scaling ladder to climb up the social scale. He'd also used rape. In 1847, he kidnapped and raped the daughter of a wealthy landowner. And eventually, after a year, I think he had to kidnap her twice, forced a marriage thereby robbing the family of a large dowry and putting himself in line to inherit a large amount of property. Rape was a rapid shortcut to property ownership for an ambitious mafioso like him. After 1860, after Italian unification, he moved from rape and revolution to cattle rustling, and he turned Borgio into a hub of the cattle rustling business across western Sicily. Cattle stolen in one province would be moved through Borgio to be sold in another province where the brands might not be recognised or people would be more inclined to turn a blind eye. It was an extremely lucrative trade and by the time San Giorgi caught up with Pietro de Michele, he was the richest landowner in town, completely controlled the local council. San Giorgi didn't care and had him arrested. And it's in Agrigento, where San Giorgi is engaged in these investigations, that the bad news about the Gambino fratricide case arrived soon after the 28th of August, 1877. San Giorgi learned about it by reading a newspaper article, a newspaper called the Gazzetta di Palermo. San Giorgi learned, predictably perhaps, that the magistrates and judges that he'd confided in about the Calogero Gambino evidence had not believed his story. Salvatore Gambino was found guilty of murdering his brother and he was sentenced to hard labour for life. And then we can imagine San Giorgi's eyes scanning down and reading, sense his shock as he realised that the court verdict had gone much, much further than that. I'll read you the newspaper, bit of the newspaper article that summarised the prosecution's summing up and the judge's recommendation to the jury. The Honourable Magistrate then had extremely grave things to say about the behaviour of a police inspector, a certain Edmano San Giorgi. Because he wants to take advantage of the position that he still undeservedly holds, San Giorgi tried to throw justice off its course by denying that Salvatore Gambino had committed the crime and claiming instead that the culprit was someone or other called Darky Cusimano. This is not the first case that shows us that there are police officers who have become the Mafia's protectors. They make a big show of wanting to strike at some other hypothetical Mafia. And to do so, they contrive investigations that have no basis in fact. Then the prosecuting magistrate said that San Giorgi had deceived, mystified and duped justice 
by trying to find a way to give someone else the blame. On the eve of the first hearing, San Giorgi haughtily sent a report to the chief prosecutor's office that made out that Gambino was not guilty of his brother's murder. San Giorgi's dishonest conduct, the word is the prosecutor's, was motivated by his desire to pay back the dirty services that Calogero Gambino had provided to the police. Thus, in effect, the prosecuting magistrate's eloquent speech, the court was making two separate accusations, the first against Salvatore Gambino and the second against Hermano San Giorgi, who has made himself into the mafia's protector. The presiding judge used the prosecutor's own solemn words to bring his highly fluent precy of the case to a conclusion. If the jury awards the accused a verdict of not guilty, it will amount to a crown of plaudits awarded to this corrupt police officer for the dirty services performed by Cologero Gambino. Dishonest, corrupt, deceiver of justice, broker of dirty services, protector of the mafia. There was the, the judges and magistrates in the fratricide case were making accusations of an unnervingly symmetrical irony, as if they were mocking his open fight against the mafia. They were alleging that he'd indulged in precisely the same kind of shady co-management of crime that he'd set out to overturn when he first arrived in Castelmolo district. Corrupt police before San Giorgi had used the mafiosi by siding with the winners in the underworld's internal power structures, a co-managed crime with the various mafia bosses. What San Giorgi had done with Olban Gambino was something very different. He'd had sought to adopt a mafia loser so as to attack the very basis of the sect's authority. The difference between these strategies, a difference that the magistrates had completely overturned, was as clear as the difference between wrong and right. The real mafia, the mafia of Darky Cusimano, of Antonino Giammona, of Salvatore Licata, of Pietro de Michele, was dismissed as a hypothetical mafia, a mere pretext for an ambitious, corrupt policeman. Inspector Hermano San Giorgi was in very serious trouble. The Gambino case had become the San Giorgi case. The Minister of the Interior was alerted and he asked the Minister of Justice to make inquiries. On the 12th of October 1877, the Minister of Justice gave his verdict. The accusations against Inspector San Giorgi are, alas, true. San Giorgi now faced disgrace, dismissal, and quite possibly jail. The principal witness against him the man who investigated the case on behalf of the Minister of Justice was a character we've already met, Chief Attorney Carlo Moreno. The same Carlo Moreno that San Giorgi entrusted with his information derived from Old Man Gambino, the same Carlo Moreno who just a few months earlier had dismissed the theory that there could be any kind of confederation between the different mafia cells across history across Sicily. 
Carlo Moreno, man with responsibility for supervising the administration of justice across the whole of Sicily, was exacting a vendetta on behalf of the Mafia against the policeman who had discovered the Mafia's initiation ritual. And on behalf of one mafioso in particular, I, I forget to mention, we also know at this time that Morena was sending, frantically sending out dozens of memos to magistrates right across uh, Western Sicily, raising all kinds of technicalities to free arrested mafia bosses. And he intervened particularly on behalf of Pietro de Michele, the rapist mafia boss of Burgio, where San Giorgio was now stationed. Carlo Morena knew all about what a dangerous character Pietro de Michele was, but he spent his credibility in spadefuls to defend him from San Giorgio. He said that de Michele was the victim of political persecution. He said that San Giorgio's uh, accusation that de Michele was a rapist was based on ignorance of Sicilian customs. This is what Chief Attorney Carlo Morena argued. Kidnap and rape of this kind constitute a primitive phenomenon that occasionally crops up, even in the most civilised societies. Sometimes there are no bad consequences arising from it. Indeed, sometimes the very family who was supposedly harmed by the rape actually approve of it by agreeing to a subsequent marriage. Society readily approves of such arrangements. When that happens, the state should forget about the whole affair. Morena went on to explain that the mafia was a kind of local custom rather like kidnapping and raping young girls, albeit a much vaguer one. He said, the word mafia is such an ill-defined concept which is spoken much more often than its meaning it's understood. Thanks to this intervention by Chief Attorney Carlo Morena, mafia boss, rapist Carlo, uh, Pietro de Michele was released. But of course, Chief Attorney Carlo Morena knew exactly that the mafia was no ill-defined concept. It was a single brotherhood of criminals whose influence stretched right across Western Sicily, a brotherhood that at the bottom level was held together by the highly profitable business of cattle rustling. San Giorgi discovered that the people who stole the cattle to send to Pietro de Michele in Burgio to be put on the market in other provinces were the very same mafia bosses in Palermo, the Chamonas, the Licatas, Cusimanos that he'd been investigating. At a higher level, the Mafia was held together by favours. Favours it could call in from friends of friends in politics and the legal system. Friends like Carlo Morena, the chief attorney at the Palermo Court of Appeal. And favours like persecuting policemen who had the temerity to mount an open fight against the Mafia and the foolish courage to discover the Mafia's secret initiation ceremony. There was only one Sicilian Mafia. On the 18th of October 1877, the Minister of the Interior wrote to San Giorgi's boss, the Prefect of Agrigento, to ask him what sort of punishment he thought would be appropriate 
for San Giorgi. And it's at that point that San Giorgi's luck turned upside down. The prefect of Agrigento urged the minister to hear the other side of the story. San Giorgi rapidly put together a long and precise account of the fratricide affair. This is the documentation, as well as a load of other stuff that I discovered that allows me to tell this story. Meanwhile, the Minister of the Interior had received alarming reports about Chief Attorney Carlo Moreno. The minister pronounced himself profoundly shocked by Moreno's behaviour. Moreno had been got at, whether by corruption or intimidation, we don't know. But it's clear to me that in 1876-1877, the most senior judge in Sicily was working for the Mafia. So now, at this point in the story, the Interior Ministry has a lot of very powerful evidence in its hand. Evidence of police infiltration, not, sorry, of Mafia infiltration, not just of the police, but also of the judiciary. Evidence about the unitary nature of the Sicilian Mafia. And it had the most vivid picture yet by any police investigation of the Mafia's internal workings, of its dynastic politics, of its codes of behaviour, its way of sending signals. But nothing happened. The Minister of the Interior, who was profoundly shocked by Morena, was soon toppled, and his successor had other priorities. There was no inquiry into the systematic Mafia infiltration of the police and magistrature that San Giorgi had uncovered. There was no reopening of the fratricide case. Old man Gambino was left to the tender mercies of the Piano dei Colli Mafia. We don't know what happened to him. His son, Salvatore, aged 34, when he was wrongly convicted of killing his brother, broke rocks for the rest of his life. Carlo Morena kept his job. But for unknown reasons, he volunteered for early retirement in 1879 at age 58. He was granted all the honours his prestigious legal career had earned. The rapist and castle rustler Pietro de Michele became mayor of Burgio in the same year. His son would become a long-standing member of parliament. San Giorgi was warned about his future conduct, but survived with his career intact. Most importantly, no one followed up the connection between the whole fratricide affair and the crucial role that Chief Attorney Carlo Morena had played in blocking any attempt to treat the Mafia, to see the Mafia as a single criminal brotherhood. Within a short space of time, the importance of the Sicilian Mafia's Mafia initiation ritual would slip from Italy's institutional memory and be consigned to the archives where only the historians of future generations would find them. Thank you.